Welcome to our podcast series called Drip. We have been exploring the importance of user experience and data in the ever-changing world of digital media. In today's sixth episode, we will be discussing AI. Despite the hype surrounding it, do we have a clear understanding of what AI is? I'm Sami, and alongside me is Ritva, and we will be your hosts for today. We have uh, thought for some time about who is the right person to bring understanding about what is uh, happening around AI. We have been warned that AI is an existential threat to humanity. On the other hand, at the same time, the biggest tech companies do compete with each other in development of AI. So, Sami, what should we think? Is this good or bad for humanity? (laughs) That's a good question. Was it Paul Virilia who wrote that when we invented the airplane, we also invented air disasters? However, I think uh, what we've seen recently is that the main point is that the impact largely depends on the motivations and the values of people using it. Yeah. And uh, today we have excellent opportunity to talk with Jana Bryson, who has special knowledge on AI governance. She's actually the person who has participated and advised uh, the European AI Act process at every stage of the process. Joanna works as professor of ethics and technology at the Hardy School in Berlin, where, where her focus is to improve the governance and ethics of digital technology. She has degrees in computer science from Chicago, Edinburgh and MIT, and despite that, she also holds degrees in psychology. So, Sami, what are your expectations for today? I'm eagerly looking forward to this discussion. Um, I feel like we are overwhelmed with all the discourse about AI that to me often seems almost absurd. We lack a clear and well-rounded understanding of what it is, what it is not, and why. And I suspect one reason for this is all the rather skewed perspectives around and being presented. On the one hand, we have the capitalist tech bros living out their teenage science fiction dreams, creating a world where they can maintain their domination like comic book villains. They grasp technology very well, and Wall Street, I would say, but they do not care much about beyond that. On the other hand, we have a humanist and sociologists who are alarmed by the potential dystopias, but lack a deep understanding or rather intuition of how this technology actually functions. What is admirable about Bryson is that she possesses both a solid tech background and a strong academic foundation in behavioral sciences. Based on what I have read by her, and heard from her on YouTube and the like, I think she strikes a great balance between these two worlds. Welcome to our podcast, Joanna Bryson. We are very excited to have you our guest. To begin, can you provide some background uh, about yourself and your academic career? Well, uh, thanks for having me here, first of all. Uh, I'm a big fan of Finland. Um, 
<laughs> Thanks for joining NATO, but that's not the main reason. Uh, there's a lot of exciting artificial intelligence happening there. Um, I, I grew up in uh, Illinois, uh, in the middle of the United States, in a small town. Uh, I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago. I could digress, but I won't. Uh, but anyway, I did it in behavioral science. I started out in physics and switched back to my first love, which was actually trying to understand animal behavior. So why different species use intelligence in different ways. I, I was really fascinated by it, and still am fascinated by that question. Um, and I've learned a lot about it since, <laughs> since then. So uh, after I, I finished my undergraduate degree, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I couldn't decide in what. And so I actually went out and paid, got, got myself paid as a programmer because I was a very good programmer. And I also tried to make it in rock and roll, but didn't. And, and then after five years, I, uh, I decided that, um, you know, I was enjoying my life, but there was something missing. Uh, in fact, specifically, I, I was just walking home after a softball game and a beautiful night and suddenly thought, wasn't I going to be an astronaut? So I decided not to pursue that, but rather to pursue artificial intelligence. It was like in between what I knew I was very good at and what I was actually interested in. So it was kind of a safety. But I also wasn't totally sure I'd like academia anymore. So I decided to pursue a degree outside of America. So I wound up in Edinburgh, which is like the best thing. I didn't do as much research as I could have, should have. It was before the web, you know. <laughs> but it turned out to be absolutely the best place in the entire world to do just a master's degree in artificial intelligence. So in America, there was better PhDs, but you only got a master's degree on the way to a PhD at that point. Now, because of the big tech, that's changed. So anyway, I was very fortunate that way. And I got to take uh, 10 courses in artificial intelligence as part of my master's degree because it was really a department of artificial intelligence. And I only had to take exams in eight of them, but I just took all the lectures of 10 of them. So that was wonderful. And I uh, did a good enough degree that the letters of recommendation from that got me into MIT. So I was at MIT and that was a problem because I basically had a psychology degree and, and, and I was a good programmer. And I uh, suddenly was in engineering school as a PhD student. Um, and I figured out that one thing that was under-researched was the systems engineering of artificial intelligence. So basically, everyone who worked on AI somehow thought it was, if they just thought of the right algorithm, they conceptualized it somehow, that boom, the you know, magic robot would appear in front of them, you know, like some kind of uh, Rumpelstiltskin story or something. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I realized that there was a lot of room for, in fact, at MIT, there weren't even that many great programmers. There were people that could build a computer from scratch, but there weren't that you know, people could get to their final year and not know what a pointer was. You know, it was really weird. This is, this is the 1990s. So anyway... I, uh, I, I did. I got a PhD in systems engineering of AI, specifically for real-time uh, human-like AI, so, you know, things with conflicting goals and, uh, as I said, a real-time system where time mattered. Um, and I think for a while, uh, the talk I would give when somebody asked me to give a seminar was literally called Time for AI. And it, was, and it was because, again, people thought in snapshots. They weren't really thinking about the problem, the, the way that you aggregate information, the world changes out of under you. And so I was able to, to collect a bunch of my research under that, that heading. So anyway, meanwhile, I, I, I got a postdoc at Harvard, actually, in primate cognitive neuroscience lab. And I had previously uh, done some work during my PhD also in Edinburgh, back in Edinburgh, uh, in a primate cognitive neuroscience lab. Um, and I was, I'll say that neither of these labs were invasive, although I, I fully support uh, the well-done and, and carefully ethically controlled uh, science. Um, but there were real live animals that were... That were um, you know, playing with touchscreens and things like that, and, and that we were doing experiments with. I had hoped that I would never go back to computer science again. I really wanted to be a, a natural scientist and uh, maybe a social scientist. But it became evident that even the people at Harvard couldn't figure out, like the super bright undergraduates could not figure out how to use the code that I'd written. So I thought I'd kind of solved you know, AI already. <laughs> it's my PhD, but I was wrong. And uh, it's like many before me and after. 
Um, and so I wound up then applying for, for uh, junior faculty positions in, uh, in artificial intelligence back in computer science again. And I just thought it would be a few years and I would solve some of the human-computer interaction problems that I'd skip back in to the social sciences. But in fact, once you finally, you can, you can jump around for a while, but once you actually get junior faculty position, you have to prove yourself. And so I still am not very good at proving myself with respect to um, getting funding. That is just not a thing I'm good at for some reason. Occasionally, I get stuff given to me. And the one success I ever had was for the, the starter grant to the UK, which is high risk. I guess I'm a high risk kind of person. So in a way, I was really lucky because most of the grants I applied to were actually kind of boring because that was what the, the funding calls were. And instead, I just used the resources around myself to work on what I thought really mattered. And uh, time has proven that I was totally right. <laughs> I mean, maybe not about everything I, I researched, but it's all turned out to be really, really useful to the immediate problems. Well, some of the immediate problems of the current moment. I mean, there's so many, right? But the ones of digital governance. So both the systems engineering has turned out to be a big thing and how, how do we develop AI and, uh, and how do we maintain uh, control over it? Well, it, that basically means how do we understand our products? And, and if you can't do that, you're not going to do as well anyway uh, as a company. So these things that a lot of people are complaining about are actually probably going to massively help the industry. I would expect in five or 10 years, we'll be moving forward ever faster once people get used to actually doing decent DevOps in, in, uh, in AI as well as in the rest of the, the software industry. But then um, the other thing is that I was, I was able to go back to my interests and in, in why, why, how, how and why evolution creates the kind of AI it does. And I'm uh, sorry, not AI. <laughs> I mean, the why, why, uh, why intelligence evolves in different directions it does, in which context you get the different kinds of solutions. AI, the actual intelligence. Well, I, no, I wouldn't call it actual intelligence. So, so I, I think that computer science tells us a lot about intelligence like what the proper computer science, the theory of computation helps us know what is even computable, right? And so that's part of what's informed why things are different and when they're different between natural and artificial intelligence. Some things are the same. Like there's some things that just cannot be done, right? And, and they're provably impossible, right? Um, for example, you're never going to, no like algorithm is suddenly going to give you omniscience, right? There's just too much to know. Um, and so it's all about what subset of what's knowable is any particular agent going to focus on. And then that depends on you know, ecological niche if you're in biology, but in, uh, in technology, what we, what we use also, it depends on the capacities, right? What, what, what's inexpensive right now? Uh, what, what, we, what information we have access to? Those kinds of things. Thank you very much. Currently, we find ourselves uh, in, in a bit of a paradoxical situation. Uh, the largest uh, uh, tech companies are investing heavily in IA and advancing its development. Uh, yet uh, they simultaneously warn, uh, warn us about its existential, existential threat to humanity. Uh, what is the driving force behind this uh, narrative? What do you think, Jana? Well, I, I think there's at least two different uh, driving forces. One is that there does seem to be some proportion of people who truly believe, you know, sort of outrageous, uh, both outrageously positive and outrageously negative things about AI. So they, they believe that it'll save us, that it's superior to us, that we should step out of the way like parents step out of the way of children. And they also think like us, oh, it's going to uh, take over, it's going to outcompete us, it's, it's, you know, it's smarter, it's faster, or something like that. These things were actually, these kinds of fears and hopes were the reason I first got into AI ethics. I just, as a PhD student, noticed that, um, well, noticed, I was, I was literally accosted while I was working on a robot that was shaped like a person. And it happened repeatedly with different people that people would come up and brag about the fact they realized that I shouldn't unplug my robot, which was not plugged in, right? And there were other, it didn't work. And there were other not, you know, 
working robots that were around. Nobody felt morally obliged to those. So it was obviously something about just being sort of shaped like a person and being in the MIT AI lab. Lucy Suchman talks a lot about that. Uh, she, she also explored the same place I was and talks about how much of it is situational you know, and, and the sort of the mythos of MIT. But, but the, these were people who were used to MIT, MIT and Harvard people. You know, the, the, it wasn't like this lab was out in the open. It was like you, know, you had to have a key to get in there. So I think some of that is just we don't have a strong uh, or, or accurate understanding of ourselves. And actually, when I did my, my uh, first master's degree in artificial intelligence in Edinburgh, as I described, uh, I was one of the few people that kept going, oh, wow, that makes sense, that makes sense. And I think it's because I had this, uh, this excellent basis from from University of Chicago, actually, uh, of understanding how human intelligence really did work. Most people don't. And so when you show them stuff in AI, they don't see what's relevant and what isn't relevant. So it isn't the smartest people who wind up taking over the world. <laughs> you know, trust me. <laughs> right? And, I, and it's not, and you know, like, it's not the smartest things in your pocket that take over your pocket either, right? It, that, that there's just like a lot of weird assumptions that are made that by, by these people. So anyway, that's one part of it. The other part of it is a very standard technique of a regulatory interference, which is that that you, you see people who have uh, these very exciting capacities. I'm not even sure they're really the leading capacities, but the very, very exciting new capacities that are that are grabbing a lot of attention. And they say, oh, I'm really dangerous. You should be very happy I bother to talk to you, <laughs> right? And, and I'm actually offering myself up, you know, please, you know, bind me, bind me here, but also bind everyone else who might somehow approach my leadership position. So I think uh, part of this is all being driven by the fact that a lot of the American tech companies are afraid that Europe actually is going to figure out a way to slow them down and then to c- come up with its own champions. So they don't want competition. In fact, I, I had a really weird conversation with someone from Berkeley once. Now, this isn't about a company. This is about a university. But, you know, if we universities have funding problems too, and if anyone wants to donate to the Heritage School uh, a campaign for our 20th anniversary, please do. <laughs> but anyway... Berkeley, somebody was going on when they introduced themselves about how Berkeley is the biggest you know, computer science department in the world and they're leading AI and whatever. And I went up to them afterwards and said, what are you talking about? I mean, come on, Stanford, MIT, uh, CMU are all bigger AI departments than Berkeley. Why, why? And you know, there's this huge number of people, but they're actually in all different departments. Why, why are you saying this? And he's like, shh. You know? It's like, no, you have to be number one because the people in Silicon Valley, it's not only that they're, that they're starting doing all this market dominance, they kind of believe there can only be one. You know, they've watched Highlander too much. And so, so they're looking for, they only donate money to who is going to be that one. And so, so Berkeley felt necessary to pretend to be that one, you know, even though they knew that there was this other competition, right? But that, that's just their tagline and that's what they all have to say at their talks. I'm like, whoa, right? And I also found out that they were apparently a billion dollars in debt because some football stadium they built back when interest rates were zero. So, so they really, really worry about these things. It's existential for them. So that's their existential problem is, will Berkeley go bankrupt, right? It's not actually, will AI take over humanity? But nevertheless, people thinking that AI is going to take over humanity are willing to donate huge amounts of money. So there are some people who specifically only, some billionaires who only donate to existential problems. And, and I, I said on Twitter, I don't know, years ago, I think you could still find it somewhere, you know, billionaires who, who uh, only do, donate for existential threats are an existential threat. <laughs> because you get all these people misrepresenting themselves 
to make themselves sound important so they can get this money, which is necessary for their cons- their, their continuation. But, Jonah, if this is power game, uh, then uh, these Americans, tech, uh, American tech companies, they possess uh, the resources to build AI infrastructure and they own our data. And now they even utilize the cultural data that we have uh, created and paid for to fuel uh, AI development. So uh, how did we end up this situation? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and notice that well, it's not exclusively American companies that are so large. So China created the Great Firewall, and then they had the same thing happen. So I, no one talks about this anymore, but I remember when it was a big deal that it used to be that it was mostly petrochemical and something like pharmaceutical or whatever, the biggest companies or these other things. And then all of a sudden, on both sides of the Great Firewall, there was this transition where, te- where tech suddenly had all the money. So, I mean, I'm not enough of an economist to entirely understand that. But I do understand that there was a lot of very smart moves made. And, and it's not only about the data. I mean, we, people used to think it was only the algorithms. And then when people start giving away the algorithms and say, oh, look, here's our code. They're like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, oh they have, <laughs> they have um, all the data, right? There's at least two other components. One is talent. So when you look at like why DeepMind was paid, you know, there was this huge bidding war apparently between Google and Facebook. And it's not clear that Facebook actually didn't. I, I think I believe that Facebook made the larger offer, but at the end, uh, the DeepMind people decided that Google, even though they weren't giving more money, were giving more of the kinds of things they cared about. And so, in the end, they decided to go with Google. So, um, but anyway, it was basically 15 people, and they said, "Oh, we're going to produce AGI." And it's like, no, but that's like so ironic that that you're being bid for because not because of AGI, but because of 15 talented people that are really good with making deep learning work. <laughs> you know, it was the opposite of AGI. It was talent, right? So first of all, there's talent, and um, I mean, a third of all, we already said there's data and there's algorithms. But but algorithms are really, really easy to, to distribute, right? Data is fairly easy to distribute in a technological system. Talent is, uh, the it's like uh, athletics. You know, people get really offended for some reason when you say, like, you know, that, that the best programmers are, like, massively more productive than, than even, like, you know, the top tier uh, programmers. But it is exactly like football or art. You know, just, it's like that. But there is talent out there that's not being surf- adequately surfaced and, and not being adequately served. And, and you know, there, there are, there, I do think that the digital is a leveler. Um, and that is, again, part of what, what the U.S. is afraid of, not only economically, not only big tech, also from a security perspective, that, that, that these things, these capacities are coming from around the world. But anyway, then finally, the fourth thing is physical infrastructure. So a lot of people underestimate how important it was that Google was a hardware company, that they were figuring out new ways to like get information around the world so fast. Uh, and uh, you know, also building all these servers you know, that they just had racks to them. Twitter, nobody could believe how many servers Twitter have. You know, that they were incredible. And, and it was, it only sort of got revealed and, and they have massively more than like say Wikipedia, which also serves all over the world very quickly, right? But Twitter had massively, massively more servers, right? So, so people are underestimating the extent of this infrastructure. So Google, um, I actually had someone brag to me, you know, in Singapore, I actually had a FinTech meeting, who bragged to me about the fact that they have all their own chips. They don't trust anybody else, a cybersecurity thing. They, they, have, they have their own fiber optic ne- network that wraps the entire world, right? And so this was partly just clever investment. Um, but it is, to me, this is one of the big questions when we're, as we're talking about global governance, is that, well, like GPS, it probably makes sense to have three or four such uh, fiber optic networks, you know, uh, just because uh, redundancy is resilience up to, up to a limit. Um, that it can also be wastage, right? <laughs> but, but, it's, uh, but there's a certain amount of times that one should be airbussed is the uh, verb. <laughs> but, yeah. and, and, and thank goodness Europe 
uh, Airbus uh, Boeing um, because, you know, Boeing ran into real problems when their own government stopped adequately regulating them, right? You want regulation. It helps keep you resilient. It helps keep you good. helps keep everybody honest. So I think we should be looking towards more redundancy and resilience, but I also think we need to recognize the extent to which these things are like utilities. They're like telephone. They're like water. And, and there used to be competence to, to, to govern utilities. So there, what you should do in that kind of situation is you identify the part, the subpart of all the stuff Google is and all the stuff, say, Microsoft is, right? What part of that is really a utility and needs to be uh, allowed to be these semi-monopoly situations, right? And what part doesn't? And then you strip those parts apart from each other. You don't keep them together. It's this one giant thing that has so much influence. Um, and that's, that's standard competition law. So we either need to get on top of how to do that, or we need to figure out how to do, well, also, I would say, um, but and or, we need to figure out how to do better redistribution. So as you say, uh, you're, if you're sitting in Finland, we're sitting in Europe, but imagine the people in the developing world too, right? So it's not only our data that has helped support all this and, and our commerce, but also um, our talent. Again, a lot of people have gone to the West Coast, sort of gold seekers, you know. So the, our education system, the EU actually produces way more PhDs in AI than, than North America does anymore. The EU basically invests more in people. So we have better healthcare and, you know, more generalized healthcare. Not, not, not the extreme ends aren't better, but, but what the average person can get is better. Um, and, and certainly what the, the, the least advantaged get is much better in the EU. So, so there's a lot of things we do better, including social mobility, again, about discovering talent. Um, for, for I don't remember how long now, like 30 years, the EU has done it better than, than North America. And a lot of people don't realize that still. They still, because America sort of figured out actually in the 50s how to do social mobility using uh, actually standardized tests to get people into the right universities. Um, but, but decades ago, uh, unfortunately, the US lost the plot on that. And meanwhile, the EU has picked up the plot on that and actually advanced, uh, advanced it. Super interesting. And if you look at the, if you focus on the awareness part, of course, as citizens and consumers of the companies and AI, many of us use technology without fully understanding how it works and what the impact is on us through data collection surveillance and how our behavior is being manipulated. How should we tackle this? Should we be better informed? And if so, who should take the responsibility for informing us, especially in the West and in the EU? <laughs> so this is a... A lot of the people that were early, uh, early movers in, in uh, computer programming in general were kind of libertarian. And I once read an article that explained it all, um, but I don't remember <laughs> the details. It's something about California and history and blah, blah. But anyway, uh, and I, I do think there's a component where as much as possible, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. But I think there's a stronger component of uh, also responsibility to others, you know, that, that the stuff is too complicated. There's this whole thing about that, you know, you won't live long enough to read all the terms and conditions that you click past, you know, that if you had, if you had genuinely read them all, you would, you would be 2,000 years old or something. So increasingly, we are trying to make, we are trying to create competence. I mean, that's what government is for, is that we hire people who go out and do the research and figure this stuff out. It's not, government is not like a referendum thing where we all somehow magically know the right thing to do. It is much more about hiring representatives who then hire researchers who then go out and find the right thing to do. But having said that, obviously, the more citizens can inform themselves, then the better off we all are. And again, saying this to Finland, I mean, I know, I know how you guys are able to defend yourselves against uh, your, your neighbors and things like that. And the, the level of investment that you make is higher than we make, you know, say, in the UK. Um, for for good reason, right? The the the, the your your threats and and concerns are different. 
And I think, so I think that that is sort of where we are now, that we need to all be realizing that we have uh, concerns about surveillance and we should try to be smart about what we have in our homes. But we have to also, we can't say that that's enough. You know, we, we need, and I think that the, the um, actually the Digital Services Act, not the AI Act, is set up to defend Europeans from this. But it, the whole world really is watching. I've, I've been to UNESCO meetings and things, and people are so excited, including Americans who weren't in UNESCO at that time. But they're all excited to see, they're, they're dubious, <laughs> but excited to see whether uh, we will be able to pull this off and make a difference. And, and that was at UNESCO. I, just uh, last month in September, I was at a, 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 you know, one of these Chatham Rule meetings um, where people, you know, a bunch of people already have their AI stuff. Well, we do too. Digital Services Act is coming into implementation now. But also Brazil, China, Australia, they already have you know, laws in place. And tech is reorganizing itself to comply. You know, and it's making us all safer. So um, I am worried. I don't think uh, that I'm not a technical determinist. I'm not any kind of determinist. I think what we do matters. I don't think we're like over the hurdle, but I do have hope. I think that there there is a lot of excitement. And I do actually think one of the things we've seen in the last sort of five years is that we have a lot of sort of latent capacity lying around. You know, we have all this new intelligence. And if we do really convince ourselves that we have to change very quickly, then we can, <laughs> you know. So um, first of all, the, the way that we adapted to COVID so fast um, and that there was much less sort of economic impact than we expected. And I thought at first, oh, that's awful. It means that ordinary people don't matter because we all know our lives changed so much. And yet what happened living in Germany was that, uh, you know, so Germany had been trying to keep Russia aligned with Europe by buying other gas and oil. <laughs> and uh, so basically, apparently Russia, so there's literally change change through trade. It's like a, there's a Wandel durch uh, Wendel or something, I don't know. Anyway, Wandel durch Handel. I'm sure how bad my German is. Anyway, the point is that <laughs> they forgot that either side might change, right? <laughs> so apparently Putin also thought that like Germany couldn't possibly uh, go go the other way from, from what Russia did. So anyway, apparently Schultz, uh, you know, our, our, our chancellor, called uh, all the companies and said, can we get by without Russian oil and gas? And they said, no, complete disaster. Absolutely can't be done. And then we had no Russian oil and gas anyway, right? The decision was taken for us. And after that, we did okay. We barely went into recession. And we cut our, our use, our fuel use by 20%. And we connected liquid natural gas. Not only did we get it into the country, but all, the, all these corporations like adapted in months, you know? So I think we have this capacity to change, and we, we know we need to do it more. We know with climate change, we ought to be doing more. The level of sort of public discourse about AI and tech in society is very superficial. You have some prime ministers making a big PR thing about meeting some tech uh, bros uh, about AI, but there's not, a, there's not a sort of substantial discussion in society. Is that possible? Should we have that? Should it be part of elections? That, you know, that's a super interesting question. So I, I used to be thinking about this naively before I came to Hardy School when I didn't know very much about governance. And I just saw this massive amount of power circulating. And I didn't understand. I felt like people didn't realize how much power was there. And this was before I knew that they got fiber optic cables either. You know, so, but I, so one person that was listening to me was this, uh, the head of my political party. I was, I'm British. And the only political party I'm actually like a signed up paid for member is actually the Liberal Democrats in Britain. And the head of my party was a gentleman named Nick Clegg. And he actually asked me to help with his AI policy, and I did. And I was saying, you know, I think we ought to be sending out ambassadors or something. You know, we, the, this, because it's not a country. 
it's totally different from a country, but it has some of the similar interests. It is on the scale of some countries. Um, and he, and he, and he, <laughs> I still remember the way he looked at me. He said, so you think this? And I was like, yeah. So anyway, then he went and worked for Facebook and he is now they're, they're kind of, their ambassador. They're, I didn't mean that we should be ambassadors for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's anyway, your fault, so, actually. So, <laughs> well, I don't know. And I don't know how, you know, I, I, it's very hard to say also with the coalition government that we were in, um, to what extent it seemed like we were doing a lot of good, but sometimes that, that uh, covered up for allowed people to take power that were, that were doing bad. So it, you know, governance is hard. It's hard to tell the efficacy. But I hope that he's, I hope that he's done good. Uh, but I have no idea what he's done. It's, it's evident when he's being used by Zuckerberg <laughs> to, to go out and, and sell things. But I, I don't know what else he's done, too. Um, anyway, so rather than going down too much down that particular rabbit hole, the point is that um, uh, we do sort of choose, I mean, you know, people decide whether or not they keep using Facebook. They decide whether or not they keep using Google. There are people who don't use Google. Um, I don't use WhatsApp. I don't have any of the meta software on my phone because I just, they don't seem to care enough about data. And I noticed that very early, you know, I, I, had, I briefly had Facebook online and I saw that I, it was leaking a status post and, and I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, this was back before recommender algorithms. So like I, I was expecting to see every post. So I, I, I still don't put anything, I, I try to minimize what's on my phone. But, you know, at the end of the day, we really need good government and good governance. Now, you know, I'm talking, especially in COVID times, you know, you wind up talking to people in Vietnam and they're like, seriously, we should trust the government? I'm like, well, you know, it, honestly, your mileage may vary, uh, but that's not a very uh, nice thing to say either. It was in, one of the things I learned at this UNESCO meeting that was last March was, uh, so this was about governance, internet governance more generally, not just about AI. There was, you know, countries there, we were talking about internet shutdowns. And they're just like, our problem is these guys won't pick up the phone when we call. They don't have delegations in every country, again, to, to, to put it differently. So maybe we should be trying to impose these kinds of responsibilities on them. But anyway, what, what the GDPR showed is that if you have a large enough group, then they will. Right? And so one of the things we were talking about was even if you guys aren't going to form a you like trade pact, that you know, if you at least had you know, self-organized somehow a set where there was like 10 you know, local offices that you would go to, so even if you're you're not agreeing on everything else in the Middle East, say, um, you could still have somebody who is the local representative that all the countries, and they're saying even this kind of organization might reduce the number of internet shutdowns because when people are afraid that like, oh, but this is happening with WhatsApp or something, that that their that their local their local peers could kind of talk them down a little bit. Besides the fact that there would be someone that really, you know, Nick Clegg or whoever was going to pick up the phone for it that there was a recognized office in each of these regions. So I think, I think uh, you know, this goes back to the Westphalian system, but we are the citizens of our countries and we need to make our countries work for us. And, and even in an autocracy, you know, how the, it's, it's true that how easy it is, first of all, there's not, it's not a binary, you know, there, there's no perfect, well, I don't know, depending on what you think of as democracy, but, the, you know, anarchy doesn't really work or scale, let's put it that way. So there's always a certain amount of hierarchy involved. And the, so the question is really, where are you on that? You know, how much, how many decisions? And we slid, I slid not in a bad way, but we, we, we moved down the pole to more, towards more autocracy to get through the challenge that was COVID. And then we liberalized again. Now, unfortunately, in the United States, they're using legislation to make it much harder to slide down the pole again, even if you really need to, which is like terrifying for the next uh, pandemic. But it's also going to be a big, you know, it's a big hazard for for solving problems like uh, climate change and things like that. But anyway, uh, for the rest of us, we we found ways to do that. 
trust has been very vital for uh, Western democracies. And uh, because we have a journalistic background, uh, also journalism, uh, the role of journalism has been very much uh, built upon trust. So uh, how you see, uh, uh, now uh, we see that the trust is declining in Western uh, democracies for many reasons, but in terms of AI, uh, how, how you see, uh, what kind of impact will AI have uh, on question of trust? Okay. So I'm not going to make this simple for you and, and just go down the AI line. <laughs> so uh, I actually do a lot of work on political polarization. A lot of people think that's caused by social media for some reason. And that turns out to be like one of these sunspots caused ice cream sale or something. Uh, it, you know, the, it turns out that actually the best correlate of polarization, if you look like by county, is inequality. And actually that's not true in the whole world. So two exceptions are actually China and Germany. <laughs> okay. And so what's going on there? So we actually have a model that's published, and we actually have unpublished data that's really proving it. It's super exciting, and I should really sit down and write and not do some of the interviews. But, but anyway, the, uh, the problem is uh, not so much inequality as precarity. So if you're in a situation where you thought you could pay your mortgage, or you thought you could pay you know, your, child, your, your child payments, or you thought you could uh, run a business, and then the economy declines, and then you're in a situation where it's a big cliff, then in a way, you don't have the luxury of trusting. You need to know what's going to happen, what your revenue is going to be, because um, otherwise you may have this catastrophic outcome where you lose your house or you lose your, job, your children or your, or your company or something. So, so basically, I think of trust now as sort of a luxury good. And uh, so one of the best ways, so one of the things artificial intelligence is doing is, uh, well, in general, this happens with technology every so often, it changes which human skills are valuable. So it doesn't make sense to say AI will take all the jobs. Jobs are sort of a relationship between people. It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. But what does happen is that which how we value different people, which people are more valuable than others, that can change depending on what we can do otherwise using using equipment. And so that's the disruption that you also saw in the industrial era and various other eras. Um, so it's like the and, and in fact one of the things I think that's going on with inequality is when is that if you look at where where are these areas of high inequality and all this precarity and, and polarization. It tends to be where heavy industry has fallen away. And then a whole lot of wages have just gone flat because nobody knows what value these people have at all. And, and then a few wages, have, it was not really wages, it's just wealth. It is, you know, some people had, had assets that are still there, that are still, but they're also polarized. It's not like the polarization doesn't just happen to poor people. Everybody suddenly has less revenue coming in and has this fear of losing what they already have. Okay. So I think what, what the other thing, though, that artificial intelligence uh, provides, or, or the digital revolution, I should say, provides potentially, it's not, it's not what I would really call trust, although emotionally it might feel a bit like trust, but it's actually information. So you can, you can actually see what people are doing. And I do think this is part of the reason that some organizations are taking very large risks, organizations isn't quite the right word, countries, individuals, are taking very large risks to really disrupt our capacity to communicate because uh, what they were seeing was hemming them in. So, for example, the, the anti-money laundering legislation, you know, that literally made it so 20% of the people in the world had no access to banking. It was great for trying to control, uh, you know, organized crime and things, but it had this, this negative side effect that there was no other way uh, for people to get access to money to be able to do routine things. I, I just heard that, you know, that I hadn't realized this, that the period where we opened up banking, like 2015, 2016, where we got rid of the you know, Swiss bank accounts, which were not only in Switzerland, of course. Uh, that coincides with a lot more heavy risk-taking, again, by some of the individuals we know globally are, uh, are sort of committed to doing things that, that their own citizens wouldn't approve of. 
um, or at least having more wealth than their own citizens would have, have them have, if that makes sense. So I think that these are the kinds of things that are creating some of the threats and, and assaults that we're seeing now. Um, the people that aren't happy with the fact that we are uh, consolidating down towards some kind of uh, surveillance of power. Now, the reverse of that, the surveillance of ordinary people, is a totally different set of problems that I'm also very worried about. Again, in Europe, we, we have been defending the, the private individual. But in the U.S. as well as China, there's been heavy, heavy surveillance at work, which really makes your, your job less pleasant. And, and, to, and there's surveillance uh, to get health insurance. So I, this is stressful, and I think it reduces innovation. I think it's just you know, morally wrong. <laughs> but you have to say more than that to convince people. And, and so what I'm trying to say, especially like to Chinese colleagues in China, they're terrified now. The elite are now terrified. You know, they, I was just at the World Economic Forum. I've been there three times now in China. And it, the most recent time was about five years ago. And then the second most recent time, the most recent was this year. You know, colleagues in China are afraid to go on the record anymore. They won't talk to the media anymore. Yeah, so so they are very worried. And if you don't, if if you have that kind of fear, you will not get innovation, and you want to get. You're going to have problems with uh, corruption. You're going to have problems with corrosion. Just just uh, quality control. You can't have quality control if people are afraid to talk. Um, and maybe a lot of people think that they could somehow maneuver around people altogether. But you're sort of forgetting what is the point. <laughs> you know, like it's not going to be like you know three people on an island with a lot of robots. It's it's just that's not a long term stable solution. Biology is a long term stable solution. It's been evolving for billions of years. It's good at persisting. And so we need to be defending, you know, our climate, but also our people. So how you see, uh, uh, how could we uh, keep our societies united? I, I think we just have to keep working. <laughs> but but one of the things we have to do is make sure that it's a high priority to provide resources across the societies. And given what we've done with climate change, we have to realize there's some places that will not be adequately resourced. I mean, maybe we can make the innovations to help them. But I think we also really, really have to figure out how to handle migration better and integration better. Um, it's not enough to like build build walls. I think you are one of the few sort of sound voices about um, talking about what AI is and what it isn't. And it, I, I think I, my my guess is it comes from this background you were describing. So few people have a deep understanding of tech as well as the sort of societal, uh, behavioral, humanist side as well. And and I'm I've been really missing that. So I was very happy to to bump into your thoughts and thinking. I will just say quickly that one time, one time somebody invited me, uh, who had invited me to a meeting, started saying, we can't all go do four degrees. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's true. It took a long time. Uh, you know, it, and, and I don't have children. There's, there's various things that, yeah, you know, it's a trade-off. But I think it's, it, we really do need to uh, remember all of us to, to provide support for the humanities and, and uh, disciplines we don't always uh, value, see the immediate value for. I, I think it's really, really important that we continue to support blue sky research and, and you know, to put some, even during all the crisis we have, that we, we still have some allocation to, to support talent in these areas. It makes a lot of sense. So as uh, maybe the last question, something that we asked uh, most of our, our guests uh, is that we, we've seen a bunch of um, technologically driven revolutions. If you think about computing, you can go to mainframe, to the PC, to mobile phones, and, and so forth. And now we are looking at something that looks like the next phase, which has to do with AI. What should we learn from these earlier disruptions now when we're facing uh, this uh, change in front of us? I, I think one of the most important things to realize is that the current change is ongoing. We have had artificial intelligence for decades. 
and don't allow, again, we talked a little bit earlier about the kinds of regulatory interference before trying to generate around generative AI. I think it's really, really important. I just saw a really fantastic, I wish I could remember the name right now, but we've only got a minute. Uh, but the fantastic talk uh, by someone who looked at who had been automated out of work in the last century. And people used to say, oh, only elevator operators. But actually, there had been a massive reduction in the number of, well, telephone operators and then secretarial positions. And a lot of this was falling on women. And so I think this is why it was under-recognized. And, and this person was able to show that the premiums that people were paying to get decent jobs explained why it went from being fewer women in higher education to more women in higher education, in, at least in the United States. And so it was a really interesting piece of uh, research. So I think this is the kind of thing we need more of. And the same thing for like, oh, how is AI going to change what, you know, the military? It's like, go to Ukraine and look, you know, stop saying how is it going to happen in the future, right? We, we have been using increasing amounts of AI since at least the 70s, you know? So we need to stop uh, like pushing AI off into the future and then wondering what, you know, like it's, it's completely speculative. We need to be more empirical. Um, one of my former PhD students, uh, Miles Brundage, I, I was on his committee, he wasn't at my school. He actually drew, you know, he could, he, he, you could, it was like a straight line. You could decide exactly when uh, superhuman chess was going to happen and when superhuman go was going to happen. It, it was, people were surprised and AI experts were surprised. Don't trust the AI experts. Just go draw a line, get, get some graphs. <laughs> That's how you can see where the future is coming. So yeah, realize that, that we, we are not thinking clearly about this because we do identify so heavily as being intelligent. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jana. Uh, fears and hopes seem to be associated with all technological developments. But Sami, how do you feel that your expectations were met? What point would you bring up? Yeah, uh, a good question. I, I think I was I was super happy. Uh, she's such an interesting thinker and talker and with such an amazing background and career as well. But if I should um, lift something, maybe um, I like the way she talked about the dystopian scenarios, how they can help make AI more popular and attract funding, uh, but how it is important to recognize that the development of AI is an ongoing process that has uh, begun a long time ago, in fact, already in the late 50s, <clears throat> if, not, if not earlier. And we need to have a clearer understanding of what AI is and what it is not right now, not what it could become in the future. I think she was frustrated by the fact that we are sort of talking about future AI when we actually should be busy with current AI. And... Uh, Another aspect that I, I, I thought was super interesting was how she questions whether we actually comprehend our own abilities. Do we actually genuinely understand how human intelligence works, which is a prerequisite for then developing and understanding AI as well? Uh, Ritwa, what were your main lessons that you take away from, from this conversation? Yes, uh, Europe seems now to be the promised land of tech covenants. Uh, so I was very eager to hear Jana Bryson. Uh, uh, she has been following the whole process of the, the European AEC. Uh, so how she sees the dangers and uh, possibilities of AI. Uh, it was clever, as she says, that she takes AI as one of the utilities like water and air, and she asks how, she, uh, how we uh, should govern uh, them. This is very interesting starting point. 
when talking about responsibilities, he said, uh, we all have to take uh, responsibility for ourselves. But as citizens of our countries, we have to make our countries and the legislative bodies work for us. Yeah, that was that was super good. And I also like that as what I found, which I found to be one key aspect for her was the perspective to make a clear distinction between technology and politics. Many tend to believe that trust in society, which we talked about a lot, not only with her, but also with previous guests, hinges on the functionality of technology and media, especially social media. If we think about uh, populist movements and the sort of threats to democracy we have seen seen in the past years. But she emphasizes that polarization and inequality is actually of much greater significance, which in a way is kind of obvious, but I think we sort of forget that in the conversation. So it's it's super good to to bring that up. But regardless of all these issues, I also very much value her optimistic outlook. Um, she talks about the pandemic, which we have successfully overcome. And we did this by organizing ourselves in unprecedented ways, solving very difficult problems. It has taught us that we are capable of doing that when we have big enough problems. And we should also do that regarding AI and digitalization in, in general. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, uh, this is a very valuable outcome of our talk. Uh, uh, we need really uh, positive thinking, but uh, I, I think we also need uh, to get active and express what we expect from technology. Okay, this uh, is the final episode of our six-part uh, podcast series called DRIP, which is part of an online playbook commissioned by the Media Industry Research Foundation in Finland. The goal of the podcast series has been to explore in-depth the fundamental questions of the media landscape, and also a little bit about the future. We have uh, discussed with Finnish and international experts several topics that uh, we think that have a great importance on the future of media industry. We have asked almost everyone about trust, as it seems to be a basic value for news, and what we have learned from previous changes in internet and social media. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think it's time for some thank yous <laughs> as, as we are coming to, to the end of this. Uh, I, I think we should thank, and I would like to thank our commissioners, of course, who made this possible, and you, our audience, of course, who have been listening to these um, episodes. And also, I would like to extend my gratitude to you, Ritva, for accompanying me on this utterly fascinating journey. Thank you, Ritva. And thank you so much, Shami. This has been great fun. I have enjoyed also our long conversations about the guest list. And finally, I want to say thank you to our wonderful guests. I feel so lucky that such great minds have spent some time with us. Thank you so much. That's true. Here, here. Thank you, guests. <laughs>